watching all those kids go out uh, makes me think of the old open air preaching that used to happen all over the this country and in other ones and uh, as many kids as there were we might need to send web outside uh, to accommodate them all jim i uh, want to appreciate tell you i appreciated your words about prayer this morning um i uh I know how much it's meant to me when I know someone else is praying for me. Even when I was a a young boy, uh, before I came to know Jesus Christ, uh, um, I knew my grandmother was praying for me, and I I didn't know all that that meant, but I knew to her it was special, and so I knew that that what she was doing for me and praying for me was special. And then once I became a Christian, I began to appreciate that even more. And then as a pastor, to know that people were praying for me uh, was just a a great encouragement to me in my life. It it is a great privilege that we have to pray. Um, I know often we think about prayer as a duty, and it is because we are supposed to pray for other people. But when you realize that you have the privilege of entering the presence of the living God to present your requests to him, uh, when you realize that those things that you pray about make a difference in their lives and in the world around us, you begin to realize, you begin to appreciate just what we have and that gift um, that God has given us, given the church in prayer. Our scripture reading today comes from uh, Psalm uh, chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the world, their words to the ends of the earth. So God's word is living and active. And it's capable of dividing between the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. And it's my prayer that for us today, his word would do that. That it would touch us, that it would reveal our hearts and our thoughts and that it would change us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for, um, for this time together. And thank you for the chance to, um, to gather around your word and to, um, to hear what you would say to us. We thank you, Lord, that you're not um, a distant God that you're as close to us as our next breath, and yet you fill the heavens and the earth. You're intimately involved in our lives. You hear our prayers. You speak to us day in and day out as we open your word, sometimes through music, sometimes through other people. But you're a God who speaks. And Lord, it's our trust in you and in the fact that you speak to us that brings us here Sunday after Sunday, that we might meet with one another and enjoy that company, but also to meet with you, the living God, to offer ourselves to you in worship and then to hear what you might say to us. Lord, open all of our hearts. 
our minds, that we might hear your voice and recognize that voice. And then we would embrace what you say. Lord, help us then to endeavor to put it into practice in our lives. And Father, as for me, I pray that you would allow me to disappear behind the wonderful cross of Jesus Christ, and that he and he alone would be exalted in our midst. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, Mom was upset with my brother and me. Uh, she was even more upset because we told her we didn't know why she was upset in the first place, and she wouldn't tell us. We asked her if we could go outside, but she said, no, you can't. And so we went down in the basement. And then we heard the vacuum cleaner start. (laughs) And whenever mom was angry, she would vacuum. And the angrier she was, the harder she would vacuum. And she was really going at it. It's really a good thing that she didn't get upset at every dumb thing my brother and I did. If she had, we probably wouldn't have had any rugs and maybe not even any wood underneath those rugs. Robert and I were in the basement and we heard the vacuum and we looked at one another and we knew what we had to do. We would have to sneak out. And so somehow we managed to get up to one of the windows in that basement, and you know how high they are in a basement. And though it was small, we managed to squeeze out. And once out, we stayed close to the house as we made our way to some bushes, and we kept under cover as much as possible in the unlikely event that Mom would stop vacuuming long enough to look out the window. We cut across the neighbor's backyard and then some more backyards until we got out to the street and we were out of sight of our house. We still weren't sure we were quite safe yet. We knew Mom might have seen us, and any moment that Cadillac might turn the corner to collect us, and then we would be in real trouble. But by the time we got to the end of that street, we knew that she hadn't seen us, and we were safe at least for the time being. Any moment we knew she might discover our absence, and the thought of that Cadillac looming large in our field of vision never left us the entire time we were gone. But we had gotten away safe. Whether we could get back in the house without her knowing was yet to be seen, but we were on our way. And just what was so important that it was worth us taking the risk that we were taking and sneaking out like that? Well, we were going to the bakery, which closed early that day, and it was a brisk 20-minute walk from our house, and if we hurried, we could just make it. And we were going there not because we had some uncontrollable sugar craving, but to pick up a birthday cake that we had ordered and paid for the day before for Mom's birthday, which it was that day, which she thought we had forgot but didn't. We pretended we had, and that's why she was upset, which was really unusual for you. I have to tell you because uh, she had never been upset when we had forgotten it in the past before. And she was really very patient and steady kind of person, and it was unusual for that to happen. 
But maybe because we had just been talking about it, and maybe she thought we were old enough that we ought to remember she really was upset. Anyway, we made it to the bakery. We got the cake. Then we went to another store, and we got some ice cream to go with it. And we hurried back home because we knew Grandmom and Granddad were on their way over. We called them the day before to invite them to come and celebrate with us. Meanwhile, back at the house... The vacuum was still going. And so we managed to sneak back into the basement and we put the cake on the table and the ice cream in the freezer. And I snuck upstairs and I found some candles and some matches and I went back down and we got everything ready. And then we heard the doorbell ring and the vacuum stop and then the voices of our grandparents and that was our cue. We came up the stairs with the candles lit carrying the ice cream to wish mom a happy birthday. Of course, she was surprised. Maybe she was even a little bit shocked. We had succeeded in that anyway. And maybe had we been a little older, maybe a little wiser, we would have spared her all of that vacuuming. Maybe. Maybe we should have just simply wished her a happy birthday and carried out the rest of our plan. But we were young, and we were determined to follow it to the end. And then we had a nice birthday party. Just the five of us, granddad and grandmom, were laughing at us telling the story about sneaking out to get the cake. And mom sat there smiling all that time. And you know, that entire time when mom was upset with Robert and I, it didn't bother us in the least. We knew she was doing what she did just because she was upset. And when we came upstairs with that cake, mom understood that we had pretended to forget her birthday in order to surprise her. She felt a little bad at first, uh, having been upset with us, but then she realized it was okay with us, and so everything was okay. And we had a great time. And I sure do miss her. You know, knowing what's in our hearts, knowing what motivates us, helps us to understand one another's actions. We knew mom was vacuuming because she was hurt, and she knew we were only pretending to forget so that we could surprise her. And knowing what someone motives are helps us to understand the things they do and sometimes even helps us to predict the kinds of things they will do based on those motives. And last week, we reminded ourselves when we were together of God's motive when it comes to people. The Bible gives us a a look into the heart of God when it tells us that God desires that every person should be saved. Now, his motives are always pure, and he always acts in accordance with his motives, but that's what he desires. And so that's why he sent Jesus, his son, to that cross so he could pay for our sins and die in our place and we could live with him forever. And that's also why he sends us out. He's given us that great commission, which we've been looking at, found in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we spent the last several weeks talking about that text 
and about the responsibilities that we have in light of it. But last week, we asked a slightly different question. We asked just what has God been doing to make disciples, besides, of course, sending his son to to die, doing that most important thing, and besides sending us out to evangelize, what has God been doing? And we began to answer that question. We began to answer what else has God done or what else is he doing to bring people to his son? And, uh, and so we reminded ourselves of his motives, his love for all people. And then we talked about how God created us, how he made us as human beings. And, and, and those things that he put in us are things that turn us towards God. And so there were three things that we saw that he uh, put in us when he created us. First, uh, the first thing being that he created us in his image. And that image in us means that whenever we look at another person or look at ourselves, we see God through that uh, image, uh, even though it's been marred by sin. That image points past itself to the living God. And then we remember, excuse me, that there is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every human being Every man and woman and child that only God can fill. And nothing else can satisfy that. And that need constantly pushes us to find that thing which will satisfy you. And finally, we said that the human conscience points past itself. It tells us about right and wrong. And it tells us how we stack up in those areas. It shows us that God's law is written on our hearts, but just as a written law was powerless to help us, so the conscience can't do anything. All it can do is point past itself to our need for something more. And those things really are powerful. They're, they're like a pressure pushing us to God or like a force drawing us to him. And yet we acknowledge that they were not enough on their own by themselves. They just can't get us there. They help. They're designed by God to do that very thing after all. But they need more. And so God does more because he wants to save people. And so he uses things inside of people, uh, the things that he put in them, but he also uses things outside of them as well. He uses their environment, which he created and which they inhabit. So God made humankind's environment and put us in them all to point us to himself. And briefly, we just want to recall what we mentioned last time we were together when we we use this as an example of God's motives uh, towards us, that he has shown kindness to all people everywhere, and, and he does that through the creation. It's a testimony by God for God or on his behalf. And so in Acts 14 we read, Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. And so that kindness displayed through the creation points us to God. But that's really only part of the story, you see. This creation does even more than that. It declares to all people everywhere that God is is and that he is glorious. And Psalm 19, which we read that portion of it uh, uh, for our scripture reading, uh, 
tells us that. And it puts it this way. I'm going to read it again. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech and night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. God's creation declares that God is and that he is glorious. Now, I think you and I know that uh, from our own personal experience. I think we know it from things that we've done and things, places that we've been. We know it when we've stood up on a mountaintop and we have looked out over the valley and watched the mists as they pass through that valley. Or when we have been outside and gazed into that uh, sky, that night sky, when it's cold and clear, and the stars are so numerous that we know we could never even begin to count them, not even with a computer. Or when maybe the moon is full and bright, so bright that all of the surroundings look almost like it's daytime, and yet that difference in the light gives it a beauty all of its own. Or when we've walked along a beach on that August day and we've heard the waves and we've heard the gulls you see and in each of those things we hear the voice of creation declaring that God is and that he is glorious so we feel that sense of awe, of awe at those times. And, and often we don't know what to say. We don't know the right words to express what we feel inside. And so we say things like, uh, isn't that just so beautiful? Or, or I could just stay here forever looking and feeling. And yet we know deep down inside that we couldn't stay there forever. We know in our heart that as beautiful as it is, it really isn't enough, that it couldn't satisfy us forever, that there's something more, something behind it all. You see, the creation is telling us all along in a voice that mere human words cannot express about the creator who made everything. And it was designed just to do that very thing. The Bible tells us, for instance, that the voice of God is like the sound of rushing waters. And if you've ever read that passage, doesn't it come to your mind? Don't you think about being at the ocean and hearing those breakers as they crash against the shore and how that sound just fills the whole sky and it happens over and over again. We're standing by a waterfall and hearing the rush of the water as it continually trips over the edge and it falls down and how that sound fills everything. Without words, the the creation speaks to us eloquently and powerfully. And we know that kind of communication too, don't we? I mean, that wordless interaction that occurs even between people. Sometimes peace is spoken to people's hearts when a young mom, a young dad, look at that newborn baby for the first time. They see that child's face. And sometimes the atmosphere can be charged with a kind of hostility that's even more uncomfortable than when words are spoken and that words can express. See, the creation is always speaking to us without words, and it's always telling us of our great God. It's true. 
Some people who are still outside the faith often misunderstand it. Some people are overwhelmed by it, and they can hardly endure it. They say things like, well, when you have seen one mountain, you have seen them all, simply because the things that are going on inside of them when they look are just too powerful, too strong for their hearts to endure. And some turn around and they make it their God, worshiping it instead of the maker, mistaking the echo for the reality behind it. That's not the fault of the creation. It speaks, and it continues to speak, pointing us to God who made it all and telling us he is, and he is glorious. And, and often it, it breaks through, and even breaks through in the unbeliever's heart. And they realize that there's something more, that there is a God. Because that's the way God made it. He designed it to do just that. Even our sin cannot wholly silence the voice of creation. It speaks, telling us that God is and that he is glorious. And yet, for all of that, the creation as it exists now is no paradise. And that, too, is part of God's plan. And so Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be uh, deliberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up until the present time. It is a glorious thing. It declares that God is and that he is a glorious God, but it is not a paradise. And when our first parents sinned, when our human race fell into misery and to death, the Bible tells us that they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, which was paradise, and the way back into it was barred by heavenly beings. And God was was saying to us that in this world there is no paradise to be found. No matter how hard you might try, there just is no way we can make one. Originally, we were created to, um, to subdue this creation and to roll over it, but now we're not able to. Uh, uh, um, every gain that we make through the sweat of our brow and through pain. The creation has always been wild, but we were supposed to subdue it. We were supposed to rule over it, but now we're not able to at all. It's become completely untamed. It's beyond our abilities. It was to be ruled by humankind, who in turn was ruled by God, and in that unity, things were supposed to work as God intended. Isn't that like a dog that's been mistreated and now is unapproachable? Otherwise, it could have been a great and good companion. So the creation is now to our hands. It it recoils or it snaps and only grudgingly yields itself to us. Even, Even its brokenness points us to our need for God. And we know, don't we? I mean, honestly, don't we know that even if the creation were to cooperate with us, We'd ruin it because we're sinners. 
And that's why God's done what he's done. So we will look past this world, even past the good things that are here, to the one who made it and who is yet to bring good about in it. The hope is that there is a time when there will be a complete union with us and God again and the creation will find its place just as a mistreated dog can learn to love a person who consistently is kind to it. God does that to point every human being to himself. And there's one more thing that God did uh, for us in the creation. One more thing that's kind of an unusual thought, I think, for us. He, He has placed each person in their particular spot within it. And again, we turn to Paul in Acts, and this is what he says. From one man, he, that is God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. You see, you and I live in the times we do because God has put us here. And he did that so that we'd come to him. I I used to think that I was born 75 years too late. Of course, if I was born 75 years earlier, I'd be dead now. But but I used to think that. I, I don't think that any longer. I mean... I mean, I, I used to think, what had it been like to have grown up in this country when it used to be the way it was? And I thought I would really have enjoyed it. And then I came across this passage, and then I realized that it was no mistake that God had put me here. He intended me to live here, and now he has a plan for me here and now, and that somehow he knew that the best way to reach me uh, was to put me in this place, to save me. And that same thing is true for you and for everyone else. See, whatever other hardships you've gone through in life, whatever good things you have enjoyed, whoever has crossed your path, all of it, all of your life has been designed to turn you to the living God, to turn your hearts to him. Not one thing has been wasted. God uses it all. You can think of our times and places, if you want, as a kind of foundations and forces to build you, God, the you that God intends you to be. He needed the right foundation for you to stand, and he needed the right forces to shape you. And he did all of that, first of all, to turn your heart to him who made you and loves you enough to die for you. And so the creation itself declares that God is, and it declares that he's glorious, but it, it's no paradise, and, and its very flaws point to our need for something else. And even the place, our place in creation, was determined by God to point us to him, to help us, to move us toward him. Because God wants to save and he did all that. He created us in a way that we bear his image and we see that image in other people and we have that God-shaped hole in our heart which only he can fill and our consciences are always telling us that we need more than it has to offer and all of those things God has done to bring humankind to himself and yet even with all of that, it's not enough. Humankind's selfishness is such that we need 
even more. Every one of those things is a powerful force trying to turn the hearts and minds of men and women and children to God. They're allies. They all have a part to play. God put them there for a reason, but we need more. And so God does even more. You see, God himself works actively to bring people to the place of salvation. He does so in four ways. First, I just want to mention one. I want to remember that one of the things that God does is he sends us. I don't want us to miss that point. We're not going to spend any time here, but I just want you to understand we're his tool, we're his ambassador, we're his co-labor. We've already talked about this, but, but I don't want us to forget it either. That's one of the things that God does to reach people. But everything else that we're going to talk about now involves God's direct work on behalf of humans. And each person of the Trinity has his part in the process. And so we begin with what Jesus does. You know, uh, he didn't just die on that cross to save us. He continues to work in our day, and he draws people to himself. And John Chapter 12, we read the words of Jesus when he says, And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And he was lifted up. He was crucified, and then he was lifted up from the grave when he was resurrected. And he's the actor here. He's the one that draws all people to himself. And and, and I want you to miss what's going on here. You know, that statement points to Jesus' omniscience and omnipresence. I mean, how could he draw everyone unless he knew everyone? How could he draw everyone unless he was everywhere at the same time? But that's what he's promised to do. And so Christ draws us. He draws people through us. We've talked about that. We're the salt and the light, and people are attracted to us as Christians because they see Christ in us, but he does more than that. He himself draws people to himself. What what is that like? What is he doing then? We've all met people, haven't we, that we just are attracted to? I'm not talking about someone of the opposite sex. I'm talking about people that when we meet them the first time, we just like them. We just want to spend time with them. We're drawn to them. Well, that's what happens when Christ presents himself to us and to our senses. There's a sense that we want him and what he offers. He's drawing us. You can think of it almost like a a magnet that draws metal shavings. It's not irresistible, but it's drawing us. And he is always drawing us to himself actively in our lives because that's who he is. He died on that cross and he draws each person today. Even the enemies of our faith uh, make allowances for Christ. They they read his words and they see there's such sanity there. There's something about it that's just sure and strong and authority that is just full of compassion and love. And those who really do speak against Christ are either so far gone and even they're not out of reach or, or they're speaking against uh, Imitation Christ, they've never met the real one. Like that magnet, Christ is at work in our world. Every person you meet that's not a Christian, Christ is trying to draw them 
to himself. He's at work. And then the Holy Spirit is at work too. And he's at work to convince everyone of their guilt. And so we read in John chapter 16 and verse 8, and when he, meaning the Holy Spirit, comes, Jesus is talking here. He says, when he comes, he will convict. That word means convince of guilt. He'll convict the world uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, that doesn't sound like a very pleasant task, does it? To have to convict people of their guilt. And you know what? I'm glad I don't have to do that. We have to tell people the bad news, but I don't have to try to make them feel bad about it. I don't have to beat them up. All I have to do is tell them the bad news. I present the facts. This is the truth. And that the Spirit of God begins to work in their hearts and lives to convict them of these things. So it says it convicts them of sin. Jesus says it convicts them of sin because men do not believe in me. You see, it's only in Christ that we are delivered from the power of sin. And so the Holy Spirit is always talking to people who are outside of the faith about their sin. He's always trying to make them feel that burden because only in Christ is that burden relieved. And that's what he's doing. And then he convicts the world about righteousness because Christ has gone to the Father. When he was on the earth, Jesus was this perfect example that you could look at. He was so pure and so holy that he could challenge his enemies. He could say, which of you can prove me guilty of sin? He knew they couldn't. And you could look at him and you knew what righteousness was. We don't know. We don't see that perfect thing. So we need the Spirit to show us, inside of us, what righteousness is and how we fall short of it. And then it convicts us in regard to judgment because the prince of this world has been condemned. You know basically what that's saying is, look, if Satan, who is a greater being than you, who is smarter than us, who is more powerful than us, who looks better than we do, if he's condemned, what hope do you have? And so the Spirit is at work in the lives of every single unbeliever out there. We're made in such a way that we know we need God. The creation is pointing us to God all the time. Jesus is in there. He's working. He's drawing people to himself. The Holy Spirit is teaching them and convicting them of their need, of their sin. And then God the Father is at work. You know, you know how he's at work? He's at work by loving the world. Yeah, we got to read the verse. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. You see, God loves us and so he gave us his son. That's the greatest act of love. But you know what else he did? I guess the second greatest act is he gave us his Holy Spirit. As Christians, the Spirit lives inside of us. Even though we can grieve and quench him. Sometimes I'm out cutting the grass or working outside and it's hot and I come in and I'm dirty, I'm sweaty, I'm smelly, and I'll walk up to my wife and say, would you like to give me a hug? 
And, of course, she doesn't even want to touch me. And I say the same thing to Addie, and she says, get out of here, right? When you think about it for just a moment, the Spirit lives inside of us, and we're still sinners. So God the Father loves us, and he gave his Son, and he loves us, and he, and he gave his Spirit. See, love's not just a feeling. It, it, it's, it's, it's an action. And God is always at work, always doing things, always expressing his love for every person on this earth. And he shows it in the kindness that comes through creation. And in other words, he knows every person individually and specifically. He knows what we need and he gives it to us. Just as I... I love someone, I want to share Christ with them, I might do some kind act for them, so God is at work in our world doing things, but he's also a heavenly father, and sometimes, sometimes love has to be hard, and so sometimes God has to do hard things. But he is at work. You know, Jesus said, He never did anything except what he saw his father do. And when Jesus suffered, he suffered because he saw the father suffering for us. And God has so engineered this universe so that no matter what bad happens to us, because bad things do happen to us, the worst of it fell on him. Jesus took our sins because God loves us. See, everything around us and in us is trying to point people to the living God. They're made in such a way that they know he exists because of the image of God in people, because of the hole in their heart, because their conscience tells them the creation declares the glory. And yet there's no paradise here. And every person who's ever lived has lived right where they are so that they might turn to God. And still it's not enough, and so God works. And Jesus draws people to himself, and the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin, and God is loving them, constantly loving them. And you know what? Sometimes even that's not enough. It's amazing how people can fight against themselves and resist what God is doing. But every one of those things has a part to play. Everyone. And it may be. It may be that that person sitting next to you on the bus or that coworker, your friend in school or your neighbor, is feeling all of those things in their heart and their soul, in creation, their need, all of that. The living God working. And one thing that might be missing is you.
It was a man. Broken, sinful, just like me. That came to me in that 7-Eleven store. Two o'clock in the morning. To tell me about Jesus Christ. If he hadn't have come, where would I be? How do they believe unless they hear? And how are they here unless we go? But when you go, you don't go alone. God is with you. The creation is working. A person themselves can't help but feel that tug of the living God. So I think, I think, I have an awful lot to be glad about and an awful lot to be encouraged by. We don't need to feel guilty. We just need to get to work. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thanks um, for your goodness. I feel like, Lord, we just try to put too much into the day. But, Lord, it's your word, and we trust that you would speak to us through that word. And, Lord, I don't want anybody to feel that guilt. I want them to be encouraged. I want to be encouraged. I want to go out. I want to share the good news. I want to be a messenger because you've given me the message and you're my master open the doors for us Lord and give us a heart to step through in Jesus name